morning. It's simply entitled, No Condemnation, But Freedom and Fulfillment. And uh, I've come to realize that uh, it's one thing to have no condemnation. It's another thing to have something that makes life, as we say, positive and fulfilling and uh, the freedom to live and to operate. And it's not just the freedom in our country for which our military is fighting. There's a personal freedom that's at stake here. And this is what this passage of Scripture is dealing with. And we want to look at it more closely today as we make our journey through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul declares, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Those five verses, and I'm confident that as you read them, you can note and probably did note that in those five verses, the word law pops up four times. You'll note that uh, it, it, the word is found where he says there is in verse number two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. Verse three, for what the law could not do and it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the, in the flesh. Verse four, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. The point in those things is to understand what law is, and it is important when you're reading the book of Romans that you do. The word law, as is found in the Bible dictionaries, will tell you it's a rule of conduct or of action prescribed or formally recognized as binding or enforced by a controlling authority. It's a rule of conduct, it's a rule of action, and it's prescribed or it's formally recognized as binding. And it's enforced by a controlling authority. In the scriptures, that's what the perception of law is. What's interesting about that, uh, if you haven't uh, run into, and I mean run into, if you have not in somehow violated the law and you've had to go to court, uh, law in the scriptures won't mean as much to you. It means more to me as a pastor because uh, over the years I've had the occasion, unfortunate occasion, to go to a court of law. I've had uh, occasion where, uh, as I was telling one of our men, I believe it was telling Brother Daniel the other night, I had an occasion when I pastored in Ohio, there was a young man who serviced my car, his name was Dale, and uh, every week I'd take my car down, I had a credit card from the church, and I'd take it down, and, and he'd fill it up, and he'd check it, and make sure everything was fine with it, and, and uh, I'd get my car, and I'd go my responsibilities for the week of service and ministry. And I got to know Dale very well, and uh, he and I talked on many occasions. And uh, one day I showed up at the station. Dale wasn't there. Somebody else was. And I said, where's Dale? And they said, he's in jail. And I said, in jail? What in the world did Dale do? And they said, well, uh, are you Pastor Henry? I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, I, he, he wants to see you. You need to go down to jail. He wants to see you and see you immediately. So I went down to the jail, and uh, I happened to know the sheriff. The sheriff had attended our church, and so I went in and asked for permission to see Dale, and he said, sure. And he took me back, and they set me on one side of that glass petition there, and Dale came out, and Dale was crying. And he said, preacher, he said, I'm in trouble, and I need you to pray for me. And he said, I need you as a character reference for me in, in a court. And I said, well, let's start at the beginning. What did you do? 
And uh, as most people who have ever violated law, I didn't do anything. I don't know what this is about. I think it was a conspiracy. I think they were trying to get somebody who looked like me. And everything I'd ask him, he'd give me a, a short answer that didn't make any sense. And so I happened to know and had been invited to uh, Ron Kane, who was the prosecuting attorney and did the Kent State prosecutions. And Ron was a Catholic man, but Ron had invited all the independent Baptist fellows into his office one day to give us a report on the Kent State thing when I first got to Ohio. So I knew Ron, so I went over to the prosecutor's office. And I said, uh, Ron, could I talk to you about D Dale's case? And he said, well, I can give you some information. So I sat down in his office, and he began to explain to me what Dale had done. Dale had run a, a, a ring of minor boys who robbed homes and house stations, filling stations, stores, shoplifting. This guy had a racket going. And I said, are you sure you got him? Are you sure you got the right guy here? This is the guy that takes care of my car. Are you sure this is the right guy? Oh, yeah, this is the guy. We got the proof and we got some video camera. We got everything. We got this guy dead to rights. And I said, you're absolutely sure, Ron? He said, I'm absolutely sure. No doubts whatsoever. Prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he said, I guarantee you he'll be going to prison. I said, and I guarantee you I won't be a character reference on a, on a, on, in a court of law. So I said, but I will be there. He said, that's fine. So they told me, I asked him when the court date was going to be, he had an appearance, and he said, but that won't mean anything, you need to be back on this date. This is when we're going to get down to serious business. Let me tell you, this thing didn't take three days, and I was there the three days. And I saw Dale sit at that desk with his defenders, and I saw the judge get up after the jury come back and said he's guilty on all counts. And I saw Dale drop his head into that table, and I heard a young man in his 20s begin to sob like I have never heard anybody sob in my life. And I heard him begin to scream out and, and cry and beg for mercy. And I heard people in that courtroom crying and sobbing. And as I sat there as a pastor, I said, this is horrible. This is horrible. Because this young man was going to get 10 to 20 years. And he ended up, he ended up getting 18 years plus something. And this young man turned and begged the people there to do something to protect him from this prison sentence. And they came and they handcuffed Dale and they began to haul him away. And he turned and he said, Preacher, do something. I never had anything in my life run through me. A guy crying and screaming and family crying and begging for something to happen to change the course of what now was set. I tell you what, I didn't understand condemnation until I got into that courtroom that day. That was the worst I had ever seen. Here's a young man in his 20s who's going to spend almost 20 years in prison and lose all the freedoms that he's had before and certainly no prospects of fulfilling life and I guess I just just didn't it just didn't relate to me what condemnation was he was condemned he was found guilty and declared to be sent to prison for 18 years plus now unless you've had a run-in with the law or unless you sit in a courtroom and you have a sense of what condemnation brings you probably won't appreciate the condemnation that's referenced here in this text, even though this is a condemnation that's not given out by a judge in a courtroom in our society. What's interesting about this one, this one comes on the heels of Romans chapter 3, and verse number 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means everybody in this room is just like the young man Dale, who I was with. Everybody in this room would be found guilty. Everybody. 
Everybody in this county is found guilty. All have sinned. Everybody in this state, everybody in these United States, everybody in this world and everybody in this universe, if there's some cosmonaut out there flying around the universe, he, like the rest of us on earth, is the Bible said, in essence, declared that he has come up short of the glory of God. He has not met the standard that God has set. And meeting that standard is the ideal that God has demanded this. This is His law. God has set a law, as it were, and we simply did not meet it. His law of right standing with Him. And if you're going to be in a right standing with God, then in essence you have to have a change of heart and life. And Paul the Apostle gets onto that in this situation here. So all who are sinners born that way are under the condemnation of God. And this verse 1 of Romans chapter 8 tells us the only way to get this condemnation lifted is to somehow come into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It has the phrase, in Christ. And the fact of the matter is, the word in the Greek for law is namos. And that word namos is the same in all four of the verses that you found here, the four times that it's used in the five verses, the four verses it's found. They do not mean the same thing, however. And that's where the catch is. Every time you read the word law in the scriptures, you need to know what kind of law are we talking about here. For instance, in verse number 2, when he uses the phrase, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's, uh, that word could be, the, the Greek word it allows for it to be translated, the principle of the life of the spirit. And then verse number 2 goes on, he says, about the law of sin and death. Again, it could be the principle of law of sin and death because what in those contexts you're talking about is not what's talked about in verse number 3. In verse 3 it says, For what the law could not do. That law is not the same as the other two. What the law is, spoken in verse number 3, is the law of Moses that you and I know so much about in the Old Testament. So they change. You have two laws in verses 2 and you have one law in 3. They're not the same and yet they're the same Greek word. Context dictates what law definition carries which. In this particular case, you need to see the process. Here's how it goes. Verse 1, it says there is no condemnation to them in Christ. Verse number 2, for or because the principle of the spirit of life, that's Christ's risen life, has been implanted into your life by the indwelling Holy Spirit at the process of the new birth and hath made you free from the principle of sin and death which was infused in you by your father Adam. That's what it's saying. And then it goes on, for or because, verse number 3, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. What he's doing in verse number 3, it's in introducing you and me to what we call the basis or the explanation of the freedom that verse number 2 talked about. What is this freedom? How did it come about? What's this all about? This freedom came about by virtue of what God did. This morning, if you are free and you are fulfilled and you have no condemnation hanging over you, it's because of what God did, not because of what you did. Not because anything you did whatsoever, what God did. And verse number 3 emphasizes that with bold statements. It says, what the law of Moses could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Now, to get a hold of that, and by the way, we won't get any further than verse 3, so just concentrate on what verse 3 is saying. The law can demand and demand and demand, but it cannot enable. And since it sets up this standard and it demands that you do all these things, you know, the, the Ten Commandments, if you just took the Ten Commandments out of the law of Moses, just the Ten, probably people in this room have already fallen short of that. You couldn't make that. You couldn't live up to that. And the fact of the matter is, that's just ten of the laws. I mean, there are multitudes of laws encompasses in that. By the way, 
This also reminds me to remind you that this is why what this verse says is important to remind you that that's why nagging, nagging someone will never work. Because nagging is a form of a law. You see, it's my law. If I nag you about something, I've set a standard. And my standard is this. And I keep nagging you to submit yourself to doing this thing I want done. Then it's the same process of what the law of Moses was all about. It's simply saying it's your standard of what you demand be done. But your nagging does not do two key ingredients to get anything done accomplished. It just doesn't have it. Nagging does not, first of all, give to the person the ability to do it. And nagging does not give the desire. So you might as well keep your mouth closed. If they won't do it on the basis of the responsibility of that which is set forth in, in, in a, whatever position they hold, and if that responsibility of carrying the job out that you're trying to get done by nagging, if they won't do it out of a responsibility of the task, they won't do it because you nag them, so you might as well quit. Nag, that's right. You need an amen or two on that one. Because they won't get the job done. It just won't. And it's a biblical principle. It says, I don't care how much you nag it. It will not do it. You know what it will do? It will do the same thing that the business about the law did. Look back. Remember when we were in chapter 7? Look back at chapter 7. Look at verse number 8 and following. Chapter 7 of Romans, verse 8 said, But sin taking occasion by the commandment. Remember? Sin taking occasion or opportunity by a commandment. That's the scriptures. You mean, you mean sometimes preaching the scriptures will actually encourage sin? Yes, in the heart. A rebellion against it. And that's what he's saying in verse number 8. But sin, taking occasion or opportunity by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Verse 9, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Verse 10, and the commandment which was ordained to life, that was its purpose, its plan, I found to be unto death. Verse 11, for sin taking occasion or opportunity by the commandment deceived me and it slew me. And then back over to chapter 8, verse number 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His Son did. But something else to be noted. You say, well, that must mean then that the law is not good. No, the law is good. It's the flesh that's bad. Look at chapter 7, verse number 12. I didn't read it. I read 8 through 11, verse 12. Wherefore, the law is holy. And the law, the commandments, are holy and just and what? And good. It's not the problem of the law. Never has been, never would be. It's not something God created that went sour or got corrupted. It's us. It's the flesh. That verse, chapter number 8, verse number 3, the law could not do in that it was weak through the conduit that it was going to flow. That's what made it weak. That's what kept it from being all that it ought to be. Keeping and obeying the law cannot make people holy, just, or good, but it can and it will expose them as not being. You see that? And that's what this text is saying. By the way, Paul, when he stood up one day in the, the synagogue of Antioch, he was in Antioch, he was speaking, went to the synagogue, he stood up, and here's what he said in chapter 13, and you ought to remember this, because some of our friends who we run into talk about keeping of the law and so forth. This is a great verse that counters their attitude. Acts chapter 13, verse 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him 
all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. What the law could not do in that it was weak, God sending his own son accomplished. Now look at eight, chapter 8 and verse number 3 again. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. When the law failed because of human failure, God intervened and he intervened in a big way. It means that he took the initiative. And you should remember, he always does. For instance, the first four words in the Bible that we have in the beginning God is God taking the initiative. And I remind you that uh, God took the initiative in the matter of creation. God took the initiative in the matter of revelation when he gave us the Bible. God took the initiative in salvation when he gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave up his son. And my, my statement is that in every single case pertaining to man, God has taken the initiative. Salvation is not a man initiative. Creation was not a work of man. And the business of recording a Bible revelation of God's very words was not man. And we need to get away from this ideal of the man part of it. It's God's word. God gave it to us. And it's of himself. He gave it. He took the initiative. And we need to remember this. This is God's word that he gave us. I say that to you so you'll understand that in this context, that's what he's done again. That's the explanation. In verse of Scripture, God saw that in man he was not going to make it if keeping the law was the requirement. So God took the initiative. And it was that God says, here's what I'll do. And he did it. It reminds me of a story. And when I was reading this, it came to mind. In fact, I later found it in another commentary that used it. Let me take you to the Old Testament, the fifth book of the Bible. The fifth book of law, which would be what? Deuteronomy, that's right. Chapter number 31. Look at Deuteronomy 31 and look at verse 14 to begin with. This whole situation in Romans chapter 8 verse 3 reminds me of this text. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and begin reading in verse number 14. Here's what the Bible says, Deuteronomy 31, 14. And the Lord said, that's the Lord Jehovah, said unto Moses, Behold thy days approach that thou must die. How would you like to wake up one morning, God speak to you and say, by the way, at the end of next week, you're going to be dead. Just want to let you know ahead of time so you can plan your schedule. You know, he does have to get on the schedule in order to get to some of us. But the fact of the matter, he says, you're going to be dying soon. And Moses met God and God said, now I've got two or three things I want to say. One of them is, I want you to call Joshua, present yourselves as him and you in the tabernacle of the congregation that I may give him, Joshua, a charge. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of the congregation. Look at verse number 23. Verse 23 of Deuteronomy 31 says, And he gave Joshua the son of Nun a charge and said, Be strong and of good courage, for thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swear unto them, and I will be with them. Now look at chapter 34 and the first six verses. Deuteronomy 34, verse 1. Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pisgah, that is, over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, all of Naphtali, and all the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah, and to the uttermost part, or the utmost sea. And the south, the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees, unto Zoar. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. What God said is, I kept my promise. I have kept my promise. That's what God was saying. I want you to see it because I've kept my promise. They will take it. 
But verse number four, I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, argued with God with great vehemence. No, that's not what he said. Moses accepted that very savagely and said, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Verse 6, he was buried. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. And no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. What that story tells me is, in effect, Moses, under God's direction, brought the children of Israel to the brink, or what we might call the border, of the land of Canaan, which was the promised land. But there he died, and there he was buried. Joshua, which is the equivalent in Hebrew, in the Greek also, of the word Jesus, gets to take them on in. So what Moses, who represents the law, could not do, Joshua gets to do. It's just the same practical truth of Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3. What Moses could not do with his law, God sent his son Jesus to accommodate. And that's exactly what that picture is in the Old Testament. It's an excellent picture of Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, Done. By the way, I never read the phrase in verse number 3 of Romans 8, God sending his own son. But that was just uh, stirs my spirit. God sending his own son. I remind you, he did not send angels. Oh yes, they announced his birth. But they could not carry out his mission. No angel could have died for us. No angel could have. This mission required God, a very God, to accomplish the work that was his to do to save condemned man. By the way, this phrase does something else. And I'd encourage you, if you write in your Bible, to write out beside of this verse, virgin birth. Because this verse of Scripture, this phrase reflects that, this idea of God sending his son. Because you think of it this way as I did. It is a fact. Jesus Christ, because it is not and it could not have been said of any human being... That one, that he was God's own son in the way the possessive word is used in this context. This is not talking about a son of God, you, me, or somebody else who had been converted by faith. This is talking about God's only son and God sent him. God sent his own son into this world, possessive son. And something else, nor could it be said of any human being that God sent him into the world. You know, for me to get up on a Sunday morning and tell you God sent me into this world would be the height of blasphemy. And by the way, if you've ever seen or hear somebody say it, uh, you ought to remind yourself that's blasphemous. God didn't do that. People are born into this world surely by the will of the Lord, but not with the intent of purpose like this one was where God sent them. God pulled them up. By the way, our, our Mormon friends talk about the pool, the pool from which all humans are pulled and all that business. Even they don't go the far as saying they're sent. They wouldn't say that. But in this context, something else that's reflective of the virgin birth is the fact that the virgin birth is reflected here by that reference where he says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. You see, what's important about that, it does not say sinful flesh. If he had been born like the rest of us were born, what would he be? Sinful flesh. But he wasn't sinful flesh. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. So the context text would say to us that there's somehow differentiated between us and him. 
What was it? It was the virgin birth. That's the thing that differentiates us. And it's interesting because Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. And I say to you, this passage of Scripture just reeks of the ideal of the virgin birth. And this verse is a tremendous important verse for us Baptists because we don't say a lot about it except at Christmas. You know? But it's important because it's the foundation upon which everything we stand for and hold to dearly rests. You get rid of the virgin birth and our whole system of belief crumbles. You get rid of that and we're done. And yet Paul doesn't, even though he doesn't use the phrase virgin birth, that's exactly what it is. By the way, if Christ had not been virgin born, if Jesus Christ was not sinless, I guarantee you, you would not read what the rest of the verse says. You see the rest of verse number 3? Verse number 3, Romans chapter 8, For what the law could not do, and it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And what? For? For sin. Condemned what? Sin in the flesh. You would not read that were Jesus Christ not virgin born and were not Jesus Christ sinless, because that would be the height of stupidity. That'd be like saying sending Rick Henry to do something about sin. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. The only way that makes any sense is if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, virgin born and sinless. What makes sin a sinful Savior could not be a Savior at all. And that's important for you to remember. I cut this out of a magazine I'd seen a long time ago. It was written by a man who had uh, done a report. He had gone to one of these, I know you've heard of them, they, they call them the Great Parliaments of Religion Meetings. They're held in Chicago almost on a yearly basis, and sometimes they're translated over in Singapore or somewhere. Well, this one was held in Chicago years ago, and here's what this reporter wrote. He said, at a great parliament of religions held in Chicago a few years ago, practically every known religion was represented, and many were the learned discourses delivered. And that is, were represented, and many were the learned discourses delivered. That means there was a lot of hyperactive talk. He says, during one session, Dr. Joseph Cook of Boston suddenly rose and said, Gentlemen, I beg to introduce to you a woman with a great sorrow. Bloodstains are on her hands, and nothing she has tried will remove them. The blood is that of a murderer, and nothing will take away the stain. She has been driven to desperation in her distress, is there anything in your religion that will remove her sin and give her peace? The reporter writes, a hush fell over that great gathering of religious men, and the speaker turned from one to another for an answer, and not one of his company of that great gathering responded or replied. Raising his eyes heavenward, Dr. Cook then cried out, I will ask another question. John, can you tell this woman how to get rid of her awful sin? The great preacher waited as if listening for a reply from John, and suddenly he cried. Listen, John speaks. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Not a soul broke the silence in that great auditorium. The representatives of Eastern religions and Western cults sat dumb as idols in the face of a human need. They were without 
a human message of hope. And it was the gospel of Jesus Christ alone that could meet this woman's need. I don't know who the reporter was who wrote that thing, but he did a, he did a marvelous job of preaching a sermon. Because that's exactly the whole point about this. If Jesus Christ, like those cults and like those Eastern religions, have a, have a, a sinful Savior, they have no Savior. You don't have a Savior if you have a sinful Savior. And that's what they have. You see, by the way, those folks who have this silly idea, and it is a silly idea. If you've got it, it's a silly idea you've got. If you know someone that's got it, it's a silly idea, and you need to tell them so. This silly idea that Jesus Christ came to this world to be some kind of human model, some kind of living example so I could look at his life and I could model my life after his life and therefore somehow, some way that would transact me from here to heaven. That's the silliest idea you've ever looked at in your life. You know why? Because when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he was sinless, he was perfect, by the way, and perfectly fulfilled the law. That puts it back to the law. Can you keep the law? No, you can't keep the law. Why? Because of the, the weakness of your flesh. How can you then match the Lord Jesus Christ who matched the law? And it's a silly idea to think that you can somehow put Jesus Christ up and the world does all the time. You'll hear religion after religion say, oh, he was a great follow, a, a model, oh, great, wonderful leader. We need to follow his example. You don't need to follow his example. You need to follow his path up to a place called Calvary, bow there and commit the fact that Christ died for your sins. That's what we need to do. And our problem is we want to look at him as an example and then we can follow his steps and we can look at what he did and how he handled these people and how he said that. That won't, that won't cut it. That's a silly idea and whoever pawned that off on the American people certainly was no friend. It doesn't say to follow his example. It says simply to believe on his name. And that means to believe the fact that he died for our sins and therefore nothing you can do, nothing I can do is going to change the fact that we're sinners and need a Savior. By the way, his life does not save us, it condemns us, but his death saves us. That seems so paradoxical, doesn't it? His life does not save you. His death saves you. So if you pattern your life after his life, You've done absolutely nothing. And by the way, I just a gentle reminder, but uh, three verses of Scripture that came to mind as I was reading. In fact, I have them marked in the margin of my study Bible. And it may be good for you to mark them down. At 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now that's your example. Huh. Go tell that to your neighbor. 1 Peter 2, 22. Who did no sin? Didn't try on 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Knew no sin. I mean, it's not just that he did no sin. He knew no sin. Try that on. Then it goes a step further in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin. Now, you want to take on that as a model? You want to take on that as an example? You want to think your salvation hangs on that rack? My friend, that's absolutely stupid. And yet that's exactly what this world, people in this city, in this country, think they must do. Take Jesus as an example, a model, and pattern my life after his. Now, yeah, let me tell you, after you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, absolutely. Perfect example to follow. Will you keep it? No. You still can't. 
Because though you get saved, you do not get rid of the weakness of the flesh. Chapter 7 has declared that over and over and over and over again. But I'll guarantee you this. Becoming like Christ will be much more passion of your heart than it was before. And that's what Paul hits on and hammers at in this context of this passage. No human can match his example or model his model. The Father knew that, so he sent his sinless Son to deal with sin and condemn sin in the flesh. Christ did that by his death on the cross. He died for what we are as much as what we have done. You see, he died for what we are so we could become what he is. And that is accepted in the beloved. He's the one that got us in the door to heaven. He's the one that got us our robe of righteousness. He's the one that did it. It's on the basis of who he is that we have an access to the Father. And that's one of the reasons we, you know, we pray in Jesus' name. You have no business, nor I have any business, of making, asking, requesting of God to do anything apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our everything. And I say to you that this passage is emphasizing again and again. Look at Romans 8 and verse 3 again. For what we, for the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, note the word condemn sin. It's important to note that verse, though, because you and I can live in verse number one, no condemnation, because of the work of condemnation in verse three. You see the point? I have no condemnation which is afforded me in verse 1. And the reason I don't have that is because of the condemnation that was dealt out in verse 3, which Christ came to deal with. I didn't condemn sin in the flesh. He did. And so there's no condemnation to me because I'm in Christ Jesus, verse 1, and I'm in Christ Jesus and no condemnation because, verse 3, He took the condemnation. He's the one that condemns sin in the flesh. And I say to you, that's an important point. By the way, understanding the word condemn, the Greek word would carry out the ideal of being consigned to destruction. That's the Greek word definition of, of, of this business of, of condemned. If you condemn someone, the ideal is you have assigned them, consigned them to destruction. They're to be destroyed. And, and technically, when they took that young man Dale into prison, uh, you know, our concept in here in this country may or may not be to rehabilitate and, uh, and I'm not really keen on that anyway. I believe there's a sense of punishment. You know, a man breaks the law, he's punished for that. And unless there's great repentance and change of heart and so forth. But the fact is, whether there's rehabilitation or not is not a big deal with me about that. I, I preach on the first end is to stay out of trouble. Don't get yourself into it. And you don't have to worry about do they have rehabilitation in prison. So my thing is there are sometimes cases where people in prison have more rights and privileges than people in America do who walk and live and work and serve, you know. And I say to you, it's important that we don't get this thing out of balance just because it's politically correct to try to be more cognizant and kind to those people. In this particular case, I understand the condemnation is it simply assigns to destruction that which is condemned. And it's important that you understand Jesus Christ came and assigned sin to destruction. It's interesting, he does three things, and one of them is that. But he does two other things that will affect your life. He not only consigns sin to destruction in chapter 8 of Romans and verse 3, but 1 John chapter 3 in verse number 8 says this, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
The ideal is that Jesus Christ came into this world to condemn sin. He came into this world to destroy the works of the devil. He also came into this world, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that's you and I, he also himself, Jesus did, took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. God's Son, Jesus Christ, came to destroy Satan and the power of death over God's people. You see, Jesus Christ dealt with sin. He dealt with the works of Satan and worked with Satan himself and death. Can you name anything that you ought to be afraid of that Jesus Christ didn't deal with? Can you name anything that you're afraid of that Jesus Christ did not come and deal with? He dealt with sin. He dealt with the works of Satan. He dealt with Satan. And he dealt with fear of death and dying. He dealt with all that. And I say to you, the reason he dealt with it is because you and I were destined for victory, not for defeat. I read again this week, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned to you, and I mention it with great confidence, that there are with people yet who are afraid of death and dying. I, Daniel gave me this clipping a few weeks ago. It's about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She wrote a, a book. Uh, I had it and, and was recommended to read it when I was in school. Her book is on death and dying. When you open that book, the first cover, when I read it years ago when I was a ministerial student, and uh, we were asked to read it just so we didn't get the perspective of the world and the pagans, what they thought about death and dying. Uh, this woman died on August the 24th this year, and she was considered an expert on death and dying. Now, I don't want to be facetious nor unkind and speak ill of the dead, but I ask you a simple question. How can you become an expert on death and dying? Have you ever died? No. Have you ever talked to anybody who has died? No. Then how would you know what death and dying is all about? You and I both know there's only one source where that would be possible. What is it? The Bible. God has revealed exactly what goes on, what happens, and how it takes place. This woman was not a Bible believer. In fact, this is her obituary. And you know, remember I've said before, I'm going to preach a sermon on how to make sure you write your a good obituary. This is not a good obituary. This woman talks about, I told God last night, and she curses and says he's a blank procrastinator. That's her words. She was dying as she said that. She felt that... Uh, she said she felt that way until the very end, but she made sure to enjoy her last moments by smoking cigarettes from Sarah Ferguson, Britain's Duchess of York, and by eating Swiss chocolates and shopping. And uh, she wrote 12 books on death and dying that focus on such topics as AIDS and the epidemic, etc., etc. The last line says, her only problem with facing death was her patience. She was looking forward to dancing with the stars. You'll forgive me, but this lady's not dancing with stars today. If this lady had not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as her personal Savior, she is tormenting in hell. And that's sad because, you know, the Bible is so clear that there, there, there's a very clear, precise, exact answer about death and dying and how to prepare for it. I read this this week, and this is a, a good question-answer segment that comes out of a magazine I get. What's important here is this comes from a Muslim 
The question is from a Muslim. Doctors tell me, he says, I have cancer. I only have two months to live. I am 45 years old, and I know nothing about your God. Is Muhammad alive? Can I trust him and pray to him? Is Jesus Christ alive, and can I appeal to him? How can I go to heaven? I do not have time to study all the religions. I need urgent help. I am dying. From a Muslim reader. Answer. I'm sorry to hear this. But death comes sooner or later to all mankind, and after that, the judgment. Jesus died for you and for your sins so you could be forgiven. He is God. He became man without ceasing to be God. Even the Koran admits that he never sinned. He rose from the dead, is alive, and gives forgiveness and, and eternal life to all who believe in his Son. He is your only hope. Muhammad was a sinful man. The Koran tells him to confess his sins to Allah. But Allah is not the true God and never claims to have a just basis for forgiving sins. Islam says to do the best you can, hoping that at the last day your good deeds will outweigh your bad. You know that no court on earth would allow such injustice. You can't even pay for a parking ticket by parking legally the next time. To save the lives of hundreds of people from drowning would not make up for murdering one person. We cannot pay the penalty of breaking the law in the past by keeping the law in the future. If you lived a perfect life from now on, even if that were possible, you thereby could not make up for having sinned in the past because you get no extra credit for doing what the law requires. Good deeds cannot nullify bad deeds, and that Islam offers such fraud to prove that it is a false religion. Muhammad is dead. He cannot hear your prayers, can do nothing for you. Muhammad's grave in Medina is still occupied with whatever remains of his dead body. Christ's tomb at Jerusalem is empty. He rose from the dead, and no one could kill Jesus, but he willingly gave up his life for your sins. And Muhammad was poisoned by the widow of a man he murdered. Muhammad did not die for anyone's sins, but for his own sin. Muhammad promised paradise as a reward for, from Allah to those who die in jihad. But your conscience knows that any God who rewards suicide bombers with paradise for killing innocent women and children is not the true God and is unworthy of your trust. Muhammad also promised paradise without dying in jihad to a select few of those Abu Bakr, his father-in-law and successor of the head of all Muslims. But Abu Bakr said that even if he had one foot inside paradise, he could not trust Allah, who might push him out. Common sense tells you that Muhammad was a sinner. He had no right to paradise. Who believed him, those who do, he deceived. God alone decides the fate or the eternal fate, and that can only be on the basis of his justice. The penalty his law demands must be paid. We have all broken God's law and are unable to pay the penalty because God's justice is infinite and we would suffer in hell forever. Christ is God and man and one person. He was able to pay that penalty for all mankind. You cannot earn your forgiveness. You only need to believe on Him as your Lord and your Savior. And you will live forever with Him in heaven. Trust Christ and rest in His promise. God said He loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Believe on Him 
and accept the endless life he offers. Let me tell you something. Even Muslim people come down to the end of the road and realize there's real fear and questions about what they've said all along, they believe. And this Muslim man proves it. And maybe you're here this morning and you've come a long way and you still have some questions about your relationship to Jesus Christ. And maybe it's time for you to face those honestly and openly. Maybe it's time to share them with someone else who can show you from God's Word how you can be certain and sure of it. If that's the case, I hope you'll come this morning. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures and we thank you for this passage in Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 3 that what the law could not do in that it was weak, Father, you did by sending your own only begotten Son into this world to die for sinners like us. And you, Father, loved us enough to do it, not based on our merit, not based on what we could do for you later, but on simply your love. This morning we rejoice in that. We're thankful for that. And we praise you for it. And I ask you this morning, if there are folks here in this building that have never believed on you as their personal Savior, I pray that you may speak to their hearts and draw them to yourself. Father, it's a matter that you've done all that you need do and can do or should do for man's sins. They've already been dealt with fully. It's now up to man to make a choice. And I pray this morning if there's some here who have never believed on Christ, they will believe on him today. I pray for believers here this morning that we might realize that our life is not based upon our keeping of the law. Ours is based upon our relationship with Jesus Christ and compliance to his word day by day and simply submitting as we can and should to follow his directives for our lives, which always brings us the blessing. So I pray today that you'd give your believers, your people in this auditorium, the encouragement in the maturing of their faith and help them, Father, to go on to perfection, on to maturity, and help them in the process to influence the lives of other people with whom they have to do. Bless the word they've heard today. Bring forth fruit in each of our lives to your glory and to the good of other people. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? And if you need a hymn book, turn to page 282. Just as I am, if God has spoken to your heart this morning about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then I encourage you to come and allow someone to take a Bible and show you from the Scriptures how you can be saved. If you need to join the New Life Baptist Church and you've followed the doctrinal position of the church and desire membership, you need to come. If you've been saved but you haven't followed the Lord in believers' baptism, we believe that baptism is an ordinance of the church. It's not an act of grace and doesn't save anybody. But it is to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and walk with Him. If you've been saved, you need to follow Him in believers' baptism. Maybe it's just a matter you need to come and pray. Whatever the need is, if God has spoken, you simply obey. 282 verse 1. Let's sing together, please. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your attention and your time. Something that I, I meant to say to you in the course of the message, and I just had a sideline note on it, which means I wrote in an ink pen beside, a red pen beside my notes after I prepared the sermon. But uh, the young man who I spoke of, Dale, 
uh, who was sentenced to prison, I assume is out by now, and I have no idea where he is. I haven't seen him since that day that he walked out of that courtroom in, in handcuffs. But he said something in that courtroom that has always been sealed in my mind, and Dale was not a believer, and um, on the table with his hands, on the table and his head in his hands, he lifted up for a moment and in crying and shaking and shattered voice, he cried out, Oh God. Two words, Oh God. Uh, I say that because um, I think we're falling into a devil's trap. I'm hearing it everywhere and it's not prayer. I've even heard it around our buildings. And I don't like it. I don't like it. If you're not praying, don't use it. It's not, to, it's not a byword. It's not to get it off your chest. It's not to say something you just feel like you have to. Uh, oh, God, is not something to be taken lightly. It's blasphemous not to use it in a conscious, humble, worshipful, prayerful way. It is blasphemous. And every time I hear a program on television and somebody sees something, oh, and up here it comes. Um, I was watching a program, one of these design programs or something the other night. And they came into this room after it had been done so beautifully. First words out of their mouth. And I say to you, that's not, one, not right. Two, not good. We have a generation of young people who are watching. They're listening. And we don't want to teach them that the word God is a slang word. It's the name of the holy God of heaven. And we have no business dragging it through the muck and the mire of slang language. And that's what we do when we use it in that context. So please help me here, and please bless your home by taking care of it there. And we'll all be the better. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled in your presence. And we thank you for your holiness and greatness of who you are, and the wonder of what you've done and are doing. And I pray help us never to get over the wonder and the worship spirit that we ought to have every time we think of you come into a church service or open your word please put us in our places help us to know our places before you and humbly bow there and may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart always be acceptable in thy sight in jesus name we pray amen May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed.